Hello, church. Welcome to Church Online. My name is Andre, and I'm excited that we have an opportunity to gather in person next week. But for today, thank you for joining us here. As we enter into this gathering now, let's pause together and be still. Breathe slowly. Let's recenter our scattered senses upon the presence of God. As we settle down, say the short prayer out loud with us. Lord, give me humility in which alone is rest, and deliver me from pride, which is the heaviest of burdens. Possess my whole heart and soul with the simplicity of love. Occupy my whole life with the one thought and one desire of love. Help me to be faithful in all my trials to love you and love my neighbors. Amen. Let this be our focus today and as we prepare for the week. If you are new to our church, we welcome you. We are so thankful you joined us. At any time during the gathering you need prayer, you can open up our app and click on the prayer tab, or you can email us at prayer at gcbdowntown.com. Everyone is invited to join us for a Zoom lingering time. This is a time to see one another, celebrate what we are learning, ask questions, respond to our changing challenges, and take the Lord's table together. The link is in the description on whatever platform you are watching this video. If you are watching this during the 10.30 premiere, the Zoom link will be, a, will be live 10 minutes after the benediction. Before we move forward in today's worship, let's enter into a time of focus on generosity. It is so important that we keep the character of our Father in Heaven in front of us, as well as His will for our lives. He has displayed generosity and we desire to follow His example. Please join me now in this generosity prayer. Father in heaven, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, brought with the blood of Jesus Christ. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds who withstanding the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. I would like to encourage you to take a moment to give now. You can give through the app or online at gcbdowntown.com backslash giving.
Welcome to the final week of our series about the violence in the Bible and our struggle with vengeance. Today, we're going to attempt to look at nearly 300 years of church history. The church during this period of history lived without a Bible, and church leaders were isolated from each other. Their unity on the Sermon on the Mount and a non-violent message to the church is inspiring under any circumstances. We're searching for truth and inspiration for how we live in our generation non-violently as the Gallery Church today, and their testimony gives us courage to put Christ's teaching into practice. Oregon, first and second century theologian and church leader, said that Christ nowhere teaches that is right for his own disciples to offer violence to anyone however wicked. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Apostle Paul's message to the church meeting in Corinth. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Deacon Stephen shouts at his stoning. All right, Gallery Church family, we have a lot to cover today, um, and so I really just want to jump in as we try to wrap up this Peacemaker series today. But before we get started, um, I, I just I, I need to say that because we've been limited in our gathering, um, even with some of us being able to get together in smaller groups, uh, but the larger Sunday morning expression, one of the things that we're missing out on is our ability to respond to situations that are happening in the days leading up to our gatherings. And so I am looking forward to us being back in person so that we can address the issues that are happening real time. And because this morning as I'm getting ready to record this teaching, um, I'm, I'm just grieving uh, with the Asian community. Um, I'm grieving with um, uh, women and the things that they are still facing in our country, and in our city, in our community. I'm grieving with the Latin American community and all that they're facing from Baltimore to the border into many other nations. I'm, I'm still grieving with our African-American community and all that they're facing. Even recently, I came across some of the Native American culture and I'm still grieving with them. I'm mourning for the poor and the uneducated that are still being impacted in great in just unbelievable ways in the midst of a culture that is so prosperous, but yet still we're struggling. A morning with children. So many of our children um, are struggling um, with the academics, with family, with community, with abuse. Been watching news reports of children by the thousands that have been abused. And I am, I am so ready for all of that morning and pain to be lifted. And I am praying that um, we in our church family can make a difference. I am ready for Jesus to come back and establish his rule and his reign. And I know that you are joining me in that. So for those of you that are oppressed 
on the underside of power in so many different ways. I want to say I'm standing with you. I'm in prayer on my knees with you and for you. And we as a church are continuing to try to figure out ways to rally around you. Lord, comfort those that are suffering. Protect them. Lord, your promises are true and we are claiming them right now. Father, I pray that you would complete the work of Christ in us, those of us that are listening to this uh, recording, that we would not be joining into the ways of this world, but we would be actively involved in your kingdom. Lord, use us to bring your peace. Use us to bring your comfort. Use us to bring life and hope to people by inviting them into Christ, into the family of God, your church, Lord. Give us the courage and the strength, Lord, continue to let your spirit bring to fruition in us the full fruits of your spirit, the full giftings of your church. Lord, we want to be useful in our generation. We want to make a difference. And we thank you for Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So week seven, Peacemaker, last Sunday of our series. Um, next week, Easter Sunday, I'm excited about us having some in-person gatherings You'll be seeing some information in the slides um, at the end of the service. You'll also be seeing things in the push notifications as well as online, ways that you can be involved and reserve a spot for Easter Sunday. So right now, we're going to take some time to look at the early church in the violent world that they were in and see how that then impacts us. And so when I say the early church, I'm talking about like the ascension of Jesus so from the upper room into the book of Acts, all the way through the early writings that we have in our New Testament, but in continuing it through early church history to around the year 300. Um, and so hopefully we can cover that and it can make sense to you today. But the New Testament, I want to be very clear on this, the New Testament, Rome was in power, but the New Testament never tells Rome how to run its kingdom. There's never a moment where there's a letter written directly to them to tell them how they should govern. It gives instruction to the church on how to live and invite others into the new kingdom that Jesus has established. There is fighting language in the New Testament, but it is used to describe how the kingdom of God advances nonviolently. Let me give you two quick examples. Paul tells the early church to train themselves spiritually like a soldier trains for battle. Now, he's not telling them to pick up swords and use the armor of God, which is all spiritual, and turn it into physical objects to go to war. He's saying, look at the discipline of how a soldier prepares. That's how you prepare to be a nonviolent kingdom of God member. And then he also uses the phrase, beat your body into submission. You know, I, I watching people that exercise and that have these hours upon hours upon hours in the gym. They are literally conditioning their body, working specific muscle groups so that their body will respond under certain circumstances and in certain situations. So Paul is, gives two great examples of what seems like violent language, but it is to produce a nonviolent follower. Nowhere do we, do we see recorded in the scriptures where the church is encouraged to do any type of military action. This actually doesn't happen until the year 380. That's about 50 years after Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire. 
Paul said this, and I believe that it is still useful for us today. And I believe that it will be very helpful if we take time to pause on this as we jump into the subject matter of our day. This is what he said to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. It isn't my responsibility to judge others outside the church, but it certainly is our responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. I want you guys to get this. So many of the questions around this Peacemaker series are about how we interact with people that are outside the church. And I just want to say there are things, and we talked about it last week, even how Dr. King publicly set an example of the Sermon on the Mount. But the majority of the New Testament, the majority of the accountability around us is for you and I to be able to look each other in the eyes and help each other look like Jesus and act like Jesus in this world. So if we witness one another yelling at a neighbor or doing something online that is inappropriate, we need to hold each other accountable to say that is not the way of Jesus Christ and, and continue to work towards this. There is so much that we can read about in the New Testament that if we're not careful what we write over that talks about the brokenness that Paul was dealing with in the early church, that John was dealing with in the early church, that even James in Jerusalem was dealing with in the early church. And if we take time right now to go back and look at the last week or month, even in our city, our community, our nation, in, in the world, we will see that there is much broken in the world around us. So we can't say that our time periods are different, that this time period was more violent, less violent, these people were better, not better, we are still repeating the same cycles of sin. Our efforts need to be on our testimony of love towards enemies in our lives. Because if, I re if, I, if you remember in last week's teaching, according to the Sermon on the Mount, all we have are neighbors. We have no enemies. And if that simple truth, which actually is simply said, but I don't know if it's a simple truth because it's very difficult for us to channel our emotions when we are witnessing injustice and witnessing harm to people that we love or neighbors that we love, but we have no enemies. We need to treat people that are, that are causing anger to well up in us like a neighbor that we love. Again, let me, let me repeat this. Our mission as the church as the gallery church is to be faithful to our king and to advance his kingdom. It is not our responsibility to be guaranteed effectiveness. Our responsibility is to faithfully do what we've been taught by Jesus Christ. But our father in heaven promises that if we're faithful to that activity, it'll be a, like a seed planted in good soil that is watered and can grow and can bear a harvest that's beyond our wildest imagination. But it may not happen the day that the seed is planted. Your life, your suffering, your faithful obedience right now may not bring a harvest until your children's generation or your grandchildren's generation. But is it not worth you and I planting the seeds of faithfulness right now in our city under these circumstances? Let me just give you a quick summary of Jesus's life, because I think it's going to be important for you and I to look at his life and then be able to parallel that to maybe some of the things that you and I might experience. So let's, let's look at this. 
Some people around Jesus were healed. He went out of his way to heal some. He healed others that were approached approaching him, but he also passed by some people that probably needed healing, or he passed by families that were grieving at the foot of a cross from a family member or a neighbor that they were seeing. Some people follow Jesus. Some people are going to follow you. Some of your neighbors are going to love you. Other neighbors are going to ignore you. But at the end of his life, listen, listen to what happened. After his years of growing up, his three plus years of ministry, his chief leader, his number one disciple denied him. His treasurer, the one keeping their finances, betrayed him. His followers at the end of his life deserted him, all of them. The crowds that on Palm Sunday, which is what today is, that was cheering for him, Hosanna in the highest. They were cheering him like a king that was coming back from victory um, to the city to sit on their throne and to govern them. They went from cheering him to less than a week later, which we talk about on Good Friday, about them yelling, crucify him, crucify him. I was even reminded about how quickly our hearts turn on people that we cheer for by watching a news story of an Ohio State player who had scored over 20 points in his game and had 14 rebounds. And if you know anything about college basketball, that's a great game. He went from being a hero on the court, even though his team lost, to getting text messages um, in social media posts that people were wishing that he died. How can we go from cheering from somebody that represents something that we love to wanting to cause harm? Jesus experienced that. We will experience that. His government wrongly convicted him. The religious leaders around him, many of them hated him. They worked in conjunction with the local government to humiliate him publicly and to kill him brutally. So the question comes out of looking at Jesus' life, was his peaceful and nonviolent life a failure? Was his peaceful and nonviolent life a failure? I mean, it is a absolute no. No, it wasn't. The resurrection of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate next week on Easter Sunday, changed everything. It wasn't death on the cross was not the final. Death on the cross was not a defeat. The resurrection brought glory to Jesus that that brought new life to the world, that brought resurrection to you and I, that allowed Jesus to be seated on the throne over all of the earth, seated at the right hand of the Father, where he could talk to the Father on our behalf. His death, his crucifixion by all the things that I discussed and so many other things that we haven't even mentioned yet, all of that was not a failure. It was actually a victory that has brought life change to so many people and is bringing everyone hope that there is no condemnation for our sin. This is good news. This is the kingdom of God. So his life wasn't a failure. In response to Jesus Christ's resurrected life, how did the early church then live? This is the thing I want us to get to today is they witnessed, there are so many hundreds of witnesses to a resurrected Jesus that you can read about in the book of Acts and how they responded to the teachings and the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that you and I 
must discover and must begin to continue to let develop into us so that we can grow more and more into the image of Jesus. What did they pass on to their disciples? That's why I want to go all the way to the year 300 in church history is not just looking at that first generation of disciples, but the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and most likely the eighth, the ninth, the tenth generation of people that were hearing about Jesus and being taught how to follow him. What were they teaching? What was some of the, 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 the things that they made sure that they passed on? I believe that this journey today is a necessary journey for all of us. The first 300 years of faith, the church, were stained with brutal persecution. I think that we lose sight of that. They would have seen crosses. Rome lacked for no creativity. Like they thought of every single possible form of torture and they used it and they used it publicly. Christians who were unwilling to give up their confession of faith were just a simple list, stabbed with swords, torched to death alive, chained and imprisoned in numerous ways, publicly and behind bars. And they were mauled and then eaten at some points, sometimes just left maimed, many times killed by animals of all different types. I think you and I need to let those illustrations just rest on us just for a moment. This would have been common for people to see. They didn't live their faith out in nice upper room apartments. They didn't live their faith out in these nicely set apart desert monasteries. Now, there may have been desert monasteries and there may have been people meeting in upper rooms, but the majority of the church was feeling the violence and the hatred from religious leaders still in Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. They were dealing with physical violence on a daily basis, and they were writing about their faith in the grip of all of this violence from Rome and religious leaders in Jerusalem. So let me just give you a list of some people that are going to take us from the times right after the ascension of Jesus all the way to the year 300. Stephen, the first disciple, was seen by the early church as a trustworthy man of God. He was stoned to death. And while he was being stoned to death, he looked at the Father in heaven he didn't pick up a stone and throw it back. He just looked at the father and like Christ said, forgive them. Peter was crucified. James, the brother of Jesus, who became a leader in the Jerusalem church, was also stoned by Jewish people. Tertullian, who was a Christian theologian and leader from the year 160 to 220, witnessed his own family being tortured and killed. Origen from the year 184 to 253 nearly died by a torture device that the Romans called the Romans called the rack only to survive to witness his father brutally executed. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch from the year 108 to 140, was thrown to wild beast and killed. Justin Martyr, one of the most famous early church leaders in the year 100 to 165 was martyred with some of his students while he was actually instructing those believers to, listen, 
pray on behalf of your enemies and love those who hate you. And then he said, we used to kill each other. Now we do not fight our enemies. As he was teaching this to his students, he was martyred. Consider this. Leaders wrote from the time of Jesus's ascension until the year 300 without one single common book or internet or mega conference. Now, I just want you guys to hear this. They didn't have the Bible yet. They didn't have all the scriptures in a neat little order that everybody could get their hands on. They had no way of communicating instantaneously with people all around the region. They wrote letters to one another. They memorized what people said. They tried to pass on verbally and in writing as often as they could the teachings of Jesus, but they did not have a single common book that was circulated amongst all of the churches. And listen to where these church leaders were located. They were located in North Africa. They were located in Egypt. They were located in Israel. They were located in Asia Minor, which would be like the greater Turkish, Iranian, Syrian area um, in our current time. And then across Rome, these church leaders were located literally north and west and south of the Mediterranean Sea, thousands upon thousands of miles that needed to be covered. And they didn't come together for an annual retreat. They didn't have a mega stadium where a conference could come together. They had no Bible to hold up and praise God through. And we can find disagreements between them. They're recorded in Acts where they have to come together in a local community and wrestle through disagreements. But then you can begin to see some of the disagreements being addressed in other writings. And they, and they disagreed over things about baptism. They even disagreed over women. They disagreed over how to participate in the Sabbath. Some of the early believers took John's letter of revelation as important scriptures. Others of them rejected John's letter. But you want to know the one thing that they all agreed upon? That's the point of today's teaching. They all agreed that Christians should never kill. All of their writings were unified around that. They, they agreed that you don't kill in self-defense. They agreed that you don't kill in capital punishment. They agreed that you don't kill in war. Never, never, never kill because that's the example of Jesus. Now, things began to change in the early church. And this is where things get so confusing for us today. Around the year 313, things began to shift from the early 300 years of church history. And we'll talk a, a briefly about that in just a little bit. But for the purpose of our teaching today, I want you to understand that going from a persecuted religion, which is what happened for the first 300, to the legitimate state-sponsored religion in Rome changed the church's perspective on many issues. This is a very curious topic, and I don't have time to get into all of it today. But I just want to encourage you maybe to look into some of it on your own. And if you want to take some time to study it, all you need to do is to search the pre-Constantine era and begin to read and understand how it went from being a persecuted faith to being a state-sponsored faith. But then within 50 years, the church acting violently. Listen to these quotes from Origen. Origen said this. He said that... Christ nowhere teaches that it is right for his own disciples to offer violence to anyone, however wicked. Tertullian agreed that God prohibits, quote, 
every sort of man-killing. Cyprian argued that persecuted Christians, quote, do not turn, excuse me, do not in turn assail their assailants, since it is not lawful for the innocent even to kill the guilty. Um, this next gentleman, his name is very difficult, Arthenagoras from the year 113, or excuse me, 133 to 190 in Athens, went even further in his saying by, quote, we cannot endure to see someone put to death, even justly. Lactanius, listen to this, from 215 to 325 in Asia Minor. Listen to this quote, it's on the screen for you. When God forbids killing, he doesn't just ban murder, which is not permitted under the law even. He is also forbidding, uh, for, for, forbidding to us to do certain things which are treated as lawful among men. A just man may not be a soldier, not be uh, put anyone on capital charge. Whether you kill a man with a sword or a speech makes no difference since killing itself is banned. In this command of God, no exception at all should be made. Killing a human being is always wrong because it is God's will for man to be a sacred creature. All right, so those are some quotes from those early church leaders. So let me just tell you about two particular documents that were mass distributed. Um, there's the, and it's on the screen for you, um, the Didache, which is from the 80, from 80 to 120 in Syria and the apostolic tradition from 250 to 300 in Rome. Both of these Christian writings were widely circulated. There have been um, so many of the copies of this found. Both were translated into multiple language, but both of these documents say no killing. Both put an emphasis on Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which we talked about last week in the Sermon on the Mount. So it is obvious that they struggled with violence and they struggled with violent occupations because they had people in the church that served in the military. They had people that served in various types of enforcement, law enforcement, keeping of the peace. They had people that invaded their homes, people that attacked them on the streets. But the early church, by its leadership, by a lot of its leadership, were writing to them saying, you are not to kill for any reason. So let me start here just for a minute, because the first century, second century, third century, actually pretty much every century has struggled with war and violence and military. So let me talk to you about the military just for a minute, because you and I can look at the New Testament and see people in the military. In Matthew 8, a centurion comes to faith. In Acts 10, another centurion comes to faith. In Acts 16, a a Philippian jailer comes to faith. In Luke chapter 3, soldiers come to John the Baptist and ask what they need to do to be saved. And he tells them to stop embezzling money, but he doesn't tell them to stop serving in the military. So I want to be very clear in the New Testament, even though early church writers were writing about the dangers of killing in military, and you can read some of these statements from these early church leaders, but nowhere in the New Testament does it say that you can't serve in the military. Nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us what even happened to the soldier in Matthew 8, Acts 10, Acts 16, Luke chapter 3. It doesn't say that they um, stayed in or they got out. It doesn't tell us any of that. It, and it, But it also doesn't tell us that these military leaders were exempt from the teachings in the early church. 
There were obvious a growing number of Christians serving in the military because why else would Tertullian, Origen, Clement of Alexandria all acknowledge that Christians were in the military? So there obviously were Christians serving in the military. But by AD 303, Emperor Dionysian initiated a persecution of Christians. And guess where he started with? With the top of the list Christians he started to persecute were Christians serving in the military. So here's what I believe was happening from the time of the ascension of Jesus to the time of 313 when Christianity became the official religion of Rome. I believe that there were church leaders that were clearly saying all killing was wrong. And I also believe that there were church leaders that disagreed with them and said it is okay to kill at certain times. If leaders like Tertullian and Origen and Clement of Alexandria were writing that all killing was wrong, um, it would be understood that they were doing so because there were others teaching people that they could kill at certain times. And let's be honest, they can even go to the Old Testament, like in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 3, where Solomon said there's a time to kill. So people that were serving in the military were coming into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. And we have no idea what they were doing. We have no idea how long they stayed or if they got their military benefits. But what we do understand is that some of them were forced to act violently. Some of them were forced to worship other gods. And some saw no reason to stop killing people. Just like in our time, most people serving in the military will never have to kill anyone. And few, but there, excuse me, but there are a few that do choose to join the military because they do want to kill enemies. So early Christian writers all seem to rally around the Sermon on the Mount teaching and say to the believers in the first, second, and third century, Christians don't kill. They had a habitus that was so important to them that they would produce a testimony of enemy love. It was their desire to be known as lovers of their enemy. And as you know, they said to the people around them, you can torture us if you must. This is the posture that they had developed. You can throw us to wild beasts. And while you do it, you need to know we will love you. And we will pray for you because they took the words of Jesus seriously. And talking about last week's teaching and even some of the things going into this week's teaching on a walk with my daughter, she said something to me similar to this. She said, so dad, if somebody breaks into the house and wants to kill me or rape me, will you not fight to protect me? Now, listen, what do we do? with acts of violence like that against us? How do we live out turning the other cheek in moments like this? Because this is some of the story of people in our church. This is this, These things happen to people in our community. This is happening in our city. So here was my initial response to my daughter. I would protect you. And I want to respond in a way that is faithful to my King, Jesus Christ. So I'm torn between protection and honoring Jesus, between the rage that builds up in me to want to protect my family at all costs. So how do we know when we are acting in a way that honors Jesus when violence is all around us? So when you and I search, search the New Testament, 
you will not find violence as a response in any of their teaching. You are not told to use lethal force to stop attackers. When members of the early church were arrested and falsely imprisoned and even publicly beaten, there is not a story of, okay, church, that's enough. Go fight. I believe that there are four things that I've learned in preparing for this particular series that I think I want to develop a habitus in my life with. And I think it would be something that we all ought to develop as a habit for our own selves. So the first is words. You and I need to learn how to use our words. How do we talk to violent people? How do we use our words to show love, to show a de-escalation to show a way of saying to them, are you really considering what you're doing? Now, listen, a lot of times we, we think that that's just pacifism or just a lame attempt or whatever, but I really do feel like Jesus set an example to accusers, to false accusers, to people that were accusing other people of how to use our words to turn away violence. One of the best stories is when they threw a woman at Jesus's feet wanting to stone him. And Jesus de-escalated that just by an activity of drawing in the dirt and, and saying to people, okay, if you, go ahead, kill her. But those of you that are without sin, throw the first stone. I think there are ways that you and I can sit together and help each other develop the words to de-escalate violence. I also think the second thing is prayer. We need to learn to pray. We need to pray now against future violence. We need to understand that our prayers do change things as much as it feels like we're laboring, but not seeing a result. We must learn to pray. And you and I must learn to pray when the circumstances instantaneously around us turn violent. How we can use our words, even out loud prayers of praying for people that are doing evil right in front of us. I believe there's examples in the New Testament and in Christ's life of ways that he talked to his father in ways that he taught his disciples to talk to the father and let the power of the Holy Spirit work against evil. The third thing that I begin to see is sacrifice. I can offer my life for family. I can offer my life for friends. I can offer my life for a neighbor. I can take the violence. Jesus set the example of sacrifice. We can follow in his example in much like Paul, we, we don't have to worry about death. Much like Jesus, we didn't have to worry about death because there's resurrection. Sacrifice on behalf of others. And the fourth thing is physical protection. Now, this might seem a little bit contradictory to everything I'm saying, but I want to make a slight case for this is we don't do nothing. We can have a physical response. And I believe that there is room for you and I to tackle, maybe even to hit or to kick um, but using it in unison with our words and our prayers and our sacrifice in order to protect those around us. Not all physical responses to violence are violent in themselves. It depends on the intention of our heart. It depends on how we approach and, 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 and use physical force against other people. A doctor with a knife is different than a mugger with a knife. A doctor with a knife will cut you. A mugger with a knife will cut you, but the doctor's intent is to bring healing in life and the mugger's intent is to do harm. There are ways in which you and I can go towards an evil person in physical activity, not to harm them, but ultimately to protect them. Let me be clear. And I think it's important that we're clear on this is I don't have it all figured out. 
All I know is that I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ. But you and I need to know that we cannot intentionally kill anybody for any reason, because we've been asked by our father in heaven to represent him in this world. And he tells us not to kill. So how do we know that our prayers in the moment, how do we know that our kind words to an aggressive person, how do we know in our response that it's going to work? And the issue is, is I don't, but you also don't know if it's not going to work. There have been testimonies in moments where people have responded nonviolently and it has worked and Jesus has been glorified and honored. And Jesus is the best example of that. So part of the reason for doing this series is that for too long, people in the church have been responding violently and they're making it so confusing for people to want to believe in Jesus Christ because the church's past actions and present actions are so violent and so hateful that they can't make sense of the fact that Jesus is love. And so you and I have to learn to live in the way of Jesus in such a way that we can talk to other people and our actions and our anger doesn't hinder them from trusting in Christ. And you and I need to understand that whether we live in an apartment or a row home, we generally have walls attached, sometimes people even below and above us. And when you and I are yelling inside of our home and we're using language inside of our home and there sounds like there's violence inside of our home, or we step onto the front porch or the back porch and we're yelling at neighbors for things that they've done wrong or injustices, we are sending a message about who Jesus Christ is by the ways in which we show violence through our words and through our physical activities. Too many preachers have preached messages about violence and preached messages about sexuality and sex and have been in their private lives, been the worst testimonies of all of this. And we have to, I have to say, that stops with me. That stops with you. We must, for the sake of the next generation behind us, teach them how to follow Jesus in a way that is honoring to Christ. And so how do we grow and learn about Jesus? Because we must learn and grow about Jesus. In our life, we are gonna come across moments that we are going to basically have to choose between what has been referred to as the lesser of two evils. Now, this is gonna sound a little bit difficult, but I feel like one of the easiest and most understood examples of this comes out of World War II and Cory Ten Boom. Cory Ten Boom is historically known for protecting and saving Jewish people from the Nazis. But what is the one sin that she repeatedly did? The Bible says that we're not supposed to lie. But Cory Ten Boom repeatedly lied to the Nazis to protect the innocent Jews that she was watching over. She knew that killing for any reason was wrong. And she put killing as worse than lying. So she was okay with lying so that innocent people weren't going to be killed. So there will be moments when you and I are going to have to choose. One of the things that the pandemic showed us at the, at the peak moments of this, that there were doctors in the hospital that were having to look at people and decide who got a ventilator and who didn't. There are doctors repeatedly every week that have to look at a mother delivering a baby and have to make the decision in a moment, do we save the mom or do we save the baby? There are people that are constantly being pushed towards having to make a choice about life 
and choose and choices about death. And those are awful places to be. And the only way that you and I are going to be able to bring salt into this world or light into this world is if in those moments we've created habits that produce the image of Jesus Christ in us so that we can continue to be light in the midst of moments in this broken world where it seems like there are no good choices. Somebody is going to suffer no matter what I choose. And so how do I then choose who is suffered? If not using legal force means that the attacker will kill innocent people. This is what Corey Timboon was wrestling with. She wanted to use non-lethal force. Sometimes you and I will have to physically respond. But the desire is, is that nobody dies when we respond. We shouldn't want to kill our attacker. So if this is true, choosing between the lesser of two evils, how do you and I know which wrong to choose? So we have to learn to memorize the Sermon on the Mount because in the Sermon on the Mount that we talked about last week, we only have neighbors, we don't have enemies, and you and I would never say we want to kill our neighbors. So if we're going to continue to follow Jesus, we must remove killing, which means that we also need to learn to deal with anger. Some of us need to be open and honest with the people in our hubs and in our growth community leaders that we're struggling with anger. We need to say it. We need to say it out loud because if we don't address the anger, death will soon follow. Killing our enemies is not what the church is about. We love our enemies because God is love and we want to represent that because you and I need to remember, we're going to talk about this Easter Sunday and we're going to sing about it. We're going to remember it. We once were attackers of God. We were the reason the son of God died and God didn't shoot us with a lightning bolt, a lightning bolt or drop a bomb from heaven on us. He lovingly took the pain. He took the abuse so that he could set us free for life. So if you and I are protecting somebody and an attacker dies, it's tragic and we shouldn't celebrate it when an enemy dies. We shouldn't throw a party. We shouldn't rejoice over the loss of any life because killing is not the way of Jesus. Another great example of somebody that was caught in a moment where they had to choose the lesser of two evils is also from the same time period as Corey Tim Boone, one of my favorite writers and one that has, all, has challenged me for decades now is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a well-known German pastor and theologian who happened to be a pacifist but that had to live under the violent dictatorship of Hitler. This pacifist, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, had to choose the lesser of two evils. And he chose to participate in what has become known as the failed attempt to assassinate Hitler. Many Christians celebrate the fact that Dietrich Bonhoeffer made an attempt to assassinate Hitler, even though he was not successful. But when you look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writings, you will find that he never celebrated his attack. He believed that killing Hitler was sin, but he didn't know what else to do. He wrestled in it. He lamented over it. He cried over it. This assassination attempt became known as the moment that fueled Hitler to want to fight until the last drop of blood. So it is arguable that up to that point, there could have been a moment where Hitler would have backed off, but the assassination attempt pushed him to want to continue to kill other innocent people. 
and to advance his injustice around the world. More innocent blood was shed because there was a failed attempt to take his life. So how do you and I decide who gets on an assassination list? Does somebody have to fly a plane into a building? Does somebody have to kill 6 million people? Does a government have to support a another leader, another dictator in another country to overthrow another bad dictator that will benefit the nation that's supporting that dictator and thousands upon innocent people die before somebody goes and drops a bomb at Langley. Some people get so upset about the loss of life that they will go to a doctor who has committed a hundred abortions and drop a bomb at their clinic. There have been these moments where people have said enough killing. So I am now going to resort to killing in order to solve this problem. And let me just say to us, is that working? Is our world a better place? Because we put people on an assassination list. Here's my point. Killing isn't our only option. Yeah, we have the freedom to choose it. But killing is not the option. I think there is a way that we can respond in the world that's better because if we honestly evaluate the people that are being killed, the ways that we are attacking other people, the ways that we are solving our problems with might and power, and yet we are still in the same problems in the world today, we must ask ourselves, okay, if we believe in this so much, is it really working? Did it work for King David, King Solomon, the kings in Israel? Did it work in the first century? Does violence continue to breed more violence? The mission of the church, the mission specifically of the gallery church, is not to try to solve the problems of the world or the problems in our community or the problems of Baltimore. Our mission is to be a display and a proclamation of the kingdom of God that we have learned about through Jesus Christ. And it only comes in Jesus Christ and bringing others to Jesus Christ and our reordering our lives to his life that the problems in our church and in our community and in our city and our nation and the world get solved. We can't solve the problems if we don't have the common denominator of Jesus Christ. And so the best way for us to solve the problems in our community, to solve the problems in our city, to solve the problems in our layer, in our, in, in our nation and in the world is for you and I to truly follow Jesus with our life, proclaiming it through our words and our deeds so that other people will believe and begin to act like Jesus. And then before long, People in communities and in cities and in states and in nations and around the world will begin to have Christ as Lord and we will walk in step with him and then the violence will stop. The mission of the church is the solution. The New Testament and early believers lived to advance Jesus's kingdom and they learned to pray for their enemies, even to lay their lives down to those persecuting them. And this is what Paul said to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter one, verse 21. He said this, for to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. He went on to explain the example of Jesus Christ in Philippians two, but Paul learned that he was going to live for Jesus no matter what. And if he died, there was a gain on the other side. And why did he believe that? Because he had seen the resurrected Jesus. He knew that he was promised resurrection. So he had seen what it was like to be in the presence of a resurrected Jesus. And he knew that that was what was waiting for him. And he saw that that was so much better than the life that we're currently living. So why do I need to fear death? 
because I'm going to get to step into the better life then and there on the spot. And so the persecution, the violence, and me acting nonviolently to that persecution and violence was more important of a proclamation. And I was serving Christ. And if my life comes to an end, then yes, I am done and I'm stepping into the better life. We are promised resurrection. And we will continue to be teaching in our church what that promise of resurrection does and how it brings peace and hope and life. Death is nothing to us, even though it is in our culture. We so fear it. We are so controlled by it. We want to avoid it. And so therefore we act violently to protect it when in all actuality, we have no reason to fear it. It has no impact on us because of Jesus Christ. It only opens the door to something better. We do not need to fear. I hope as a church that even though we're ending this Peacemaker series and we ended the Replant series, that you can go back and look at both of these series to begin to see how the early church formed and what they did and what they taught and how they responded verbally and non-verbally, their life and their actions, their ministry, the way that they loved enemies and how it was a proclamation of the kingdom of God and how important that was to them. We need to go back and meditate on this. You just listening to this one time or looking at the notes one time is not going to be sufficient to create a habit in us. We need to continue to learn and to develop a habit. And we will be talking about scriptures we need to memorize. We will be talking about ways that we can recite those and remind each other of what we've been taught in Jesus Christ. So those of you that are watching this video today and are going to be interacting over this, we need to see more of Jesus and less of the violence that the church has been guilty of in the past and in our present day. Less violence in our lives. We need to get violence out of our language and out of our actions. We need to get it out of our homes, how we interact with our spouses and with our children, with our community, with our parents, with, our, with, with cousins and aunts and uncles. We need to get violence out of our community, the, the block that we live on, the apartment building that we live in. We need to continue to act nonviolently in our community and in our city so that we can join into the kingdom power of God that is setting people free. There is a different way for you and I to live and we can honor Jesus with our life. I love how the Sermon on the Mount ends. Jesus tells a story of somebody who built a house on the sand and house on the rock. The storms are going to come. We're not just going to face hurricanes and tornadoes and rain and hail and snow. We are going to face the storms of violence in our world today. And if you and I have built our lives on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, you and I will stand no matter how painful or how much pressure or how much violence comes our way. We will be fine if we are focused and rooted onto and in Jesus Christ. But if we have a different foundation under us, we will be the victims of the perpetual violence and pain that has been seen in the church from generation to generation. And we must stop that for the sake of the disciples that you and I are going to make so that they don't have to face the violence of our day. Let's continue to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, even if it goes against our natural desires for violence. He, he lived it. He taught it, let's obey it, and let's live it ourselves.
We want to invite you to respond to the word of God that we just received. We know that he is speaking and working in our hearts. As we come to the end of teachings on violence, what are you struggling with? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you about this enemy? For over 300 years, church leaders were teaching their disciples to love their enemies and pray for them. Is this the way we live? Where are we out of step with this intense focus on the Sermon on the Mount? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Paul and the other leaders had no fear of death and a high capacity to endure violence. Do you have this same peace about your life and the promise of resurrection? What disciplines do you need to practice to help you endure for the sake of Jesus' kingdom being proclaimed in your life? Ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you now and help you let go of anything that is keeping you from seeing God's love and being a display of God's love to the enemy in your life. Let us respond to the Holy Spirit, acknowledge his work in us, and celebrate that we are lavishly loved by our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ.